copper coins. Truly I tell you, his poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will all these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Good morning, everyone. Keep that, uh, that uh, your brochure opened because I'll, I'll be talking about that passage and let's pray uh, before I begin. Heavenly Father, on the cross, Jesus bound Satan. We pray that you'll keep him bound thoroughly today and help him not to snatch away the word that comes to us uh, this morning. Please be gracious to us, open our ears to hear Open our eyes that we might see the world as you see it and help our hearts to turn so that we might find your healing. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Global anxiety in the end times is our topic for the next two weeks. I will have something to say about the whole topic each week, but this week I'm majoring more on the first, global anxiety, and next week I'll major more on the second, in the last times. Since the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our world has come into the end times. And these end times are filled with global anxiety, if you care to see it. Not everyone wants to, of course. Jesus knew that once he turned to the crowd and he said in Luke 12, verse 54, when you see a cloud rise, immediately you say it's going to rain and it does. 
And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Now today and next week we are going to follow Jesus' interpretation of this present time by looking at Luke 21. In that chapter Jesus gives a snapshot of the global anxiety for his own day but because the world is what it is it's also a snapshot of any day and indeed even of our day. We certainly live in an age of anxiety it's hard to put a figure on it, of course, but about 10% of the surveys say about 10% of Australians at any one time suffer from a diagnosed anxiety disorder. And the same kind of figures are available for the global situation as well, about 10%. And even if we're not amongst the official statistics of diagnosed anxiety disorders, we all know what it is to be anxious. Quick definition not my own. Anxiety is that feeling of apprehension and dread that comes with the perception that something bad might happen. To say the same thing another way, anxiety is different from fear. Fear arises from a real concrete thing in the real world. But anxiety is about nothing. That is, it arises from a mere possibility, something that is not actually the case, but is only potentially the case. We are anxious about what might happen. It's interesting to notice that social commentators and historians have identified many periods of human history as the age of anxiety. Apart from the present age that we're living in, I have noticed these, for example, the whole 20th century, post-World War II, post-World War I, early modern culture, early 17th century England, the medieval period, the period of late antiquity from Marcus, from Marcus Aurelius through to Constantine, and the first century after Christ. That's just what I've noticed, people calling the age of anxiety. But this is no surprise to the Bible reader, really, because anxiety is built into the fabric of this fallen world. It is part of a world gone wrong, a broken world groaning towards the day of resurrection. Now in Luke 21 verse 1 to 19 we have three snapshots of this global anxiety and with each snapshot Jesus also gives us a way of coping with and perhaps even escaping from the global anxiety that's all around us every day. Some of them are pretty, pretty quick, so you've got to watch them carefully. Now, in the first snapshot that we see, global anxiety is focused through a poor widow, anxious about survival. This widow who throws uh, her two cents in when the rich give much more is usually paraded as an example of wonderful devotion to God a model and example of self-sacrifice. But as true as that may be, Jesus' words show us that he thought something was seriously wrong here with this widow. 
Our English translations usually smooth over Jesus' confronting words. What he really said was something like this. The rich gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her lack. How do you do that? How do you give out of your lack? That is something you don't have. How do you give out of your lack? The rich had plenty to give. She had nothing to give. And yet she gave out of her nothing. Jesus' final words show the problem, the real problem. Literally, he said, she put in all of her life. Just before this account, as Jesus warned people about the religious leaders, he said in chapter 20, verse 46 and 47, these things. Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. They devour widows' houses. And in the very next scene, we see this widow handing in her whole life to the temple. In the Old Testament, along with the orphan and the refugee, the widow was one of those three classes of vulnerable people so close to God's heart that he instructed the people of Israel to specially care for them. And yet here, in the temple itself, the religious leaders had taken this widow's whole life. There is something seriously wrong here. It is a snapshot on the global anxiety of this world, for we are all anxious about survival. While the vulnerable struggle to survive, the rich, the powerful, the people at the centre and the top of society hold all the cards. Their, in their own anxiety about survival means they have to take it all to oppress the poor and exploit the weak rather than care for those ones who are so held so dear by God. And tragically, even human religion does the same, and it does it in the name of God. Now, we all know that this is the way of the world. The rich get richer, the poor get exploited. This world system raises global anxiety because deep in our bones we are anxious about surviving. If we aren't one of the rich, the strong, the powerful, then how will we survive in this world? Or will we be like the poor widow who is robbed of the last two cents of her life? And in our perversity, even though we know all, all this, or perhaps because we know all this, we are, we are still attracted by the glitz and the glamour, the wealth and the power of this world. Whereas Jesus looked at the temple and saw its corruption, some of his disciples were besotted with its magnificence. Look at verse 5, the second paragraph there. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. And they were right. King Herod's temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Like the Tower of Babel, it shouted loudly about human achievement, human wealth, human power and control. And so, in the usual human way of seeing things, 
Herod's temple made grand promises about, about where lasting security could be found. Jesus saw things differently. His retort shocked his friends. Verse 6, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Despite appearances, there is nothing special here. Even this magnificent building, like all human buildings, will one day be all be gone, rolled up and discarded like an old, worn-out garment. Now here Jesus is hinting towards the future kingdom of God, which will arrive to do away with all human kingdoms and bring with it the restoration of all things. Don't get fixated on Herod's temple, he's saying. Its time will come, and then it will only be a pile of rubble. Now, the widow focuses for us one aspect of global anxiety. In this world built and maintained and controlled by the rich, the strong, the powerful, the religious, we are anxious about survival. Jesus sees through it all and says, don't focus upon the human things that will come to an end. Focus instead on the end that God will bring about, for that will last forever. Shocked by Jesus' dismissal of Herod's magnificent temple, his disciples ask him a question that reveals another snapshot of global anxiety. We are anxious about the future. If something as magnificent as Herod's temple will be turned into a heap of ruins, the disciples realise Jesus must be, must be talking about the end of the world as they know it. Verse 7, they ask a question. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? They want to know two things. When will it happen? And what will be the sign? So we can be prepared. Now, Jesus will ha have something to say about both those questions for sure in what follows, and we'll look a little bit more closely at this, what he has to say next week. But before he tells them about the end and what is the sign of the end, he firstly tells them about what isn't the sign of the end. See there in verse 9, at the end of the verse 9, these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So he's talking about what is not a sign of the end. Plenty of things happen in our world that make us anxious about the future, but none of these things say anything about the end. There are always prophets of doom and gloom, like in verse 8, acting, acting like the Messiah and saying the end is near, the time is near, but, and there are always plenty of chaos and disaster that they can point to to, to back up their prophecy. Look at the disasters that Jesus singles out in verse 9. When you hear of wars and uprisings, he says. Or verse 10, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. With every daily news feed, more disaster is put into our hands and into our minds. Apparently one of the causes of increasing anxiety in our own age, especially amongst teenagers, is the mobile phone. Once upon a time, 
If you are going to be affected by an earthquake or war or tsunami or a volcanic eruption or an airplane crash or a civil unrest or a terrorist attack, then you would have to have been there on the spot where it occurred to know about it. But nowadays, troubles from every single corner of our world are beamed through our mobile phones directly into what used to be the place of peace and safety, our own bedrooms. And with such a constant supply of the world's chaos, any wonder we are increasingly anxious about the future. If the world is straining under such a load of troubles, how can any of us survive? And is there a future that is worth stepping into positively? Well, Jesus is thoroughly positive. He brings a message so simply put and so quickly put, it's easy to miss it. So watch it. It's there in verse 9. Don't be frightened, he says. There is an end and it will be a good end because it is God's good end. It doesn't come immediately on the back of the troubles of this world. Don't be frightened by them. If you want a sign, you will need to look elsewhere. The wars, uprisings, earthquakes, famine and fearful cosmic events in the sky don't tell us anything about the future. They are just part of the present, a world that is groaning. Don't be frightened. The end will come with God. And God's end is not immediately associated with the many disasters of the daily news. Jesus says, don't be frightened by your mobile phones. With that brief word of comfort, Jesus then gives us our third snapshot of global anxiety. One that in his mind is even more important than any of these disasters we've been talking about that arise, these chaotic world events that arise within our world. This is what he's getting at. But before all this, it's not so much talking in terms of time, but importance. Before any of these things, this is more important than any of them, is what he's saying. Our world, as part of global anxiety, is anxious about Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the strangest things to understand about global anxiety. For me, it's completely understandable that a vulnerable widow is anxious about survival and I can even grasp how the wealthy of this world are also deep down in their bones anxious about survival. It also makes complete sense to me that we might be anxious about the future when we hear about famines, wars, earthquakes, tsunamis, robberies, road accidents, cosmic disasters over and over again. In such a world as this, being anxious about the future seems to be thoroughly normal. But why be anxious about Jesus Christ, who only brings good news and wisdom and healing and the promise of the kingdom of God? Why is our world anxious about Jesus Christ? Well, this is the kind of world that we're in. Now, notice how this anxiety comes to the forefront for Jesus. But before all of these things... They will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name, he says. Governments and kings, synagogues and prisons, structures of power. Those who run the temple that displays its wealth while exploiting the widow. The political forces that enable its existence 
In Jesus' day, the power of Rome, which backed up the high priests in the temple, in the temple system. And such ancient forces have their counterparts in our day as well. Politics and false religion always work in harmony together against the true people of God. And how strange it is that it does. I mean, the followers of Jesus Christ, look at us for goodness sake. We are so small, of no account in this world system. And yet the world system wants to silence us, to nobble us, to remove our influence, to make us conform to their prevailing ideology, to wipe us out of existence. The strangeness of the fact that the world is anxious about Jesus Christ ought to alert us to the fact that there's something more going on here, something bigger than even the world system. There are evil forces behind these things that are specifically targeted at Jesus Christ. Talk about the modern day, here, right now. Even before the Ruddock report is released, it is absolutely patently clear that many in power and most in the journalistic talking class do not want religious freedom in Australia if it means Christianity will prosper. We have prayed here in this place more than once in my hearing for the persecuted church as if it's somewhere other than here in Australia. But make no mistake, it is here, as it is, in, as it is all over the Western world as well. We have small groups of people with an anti-Christian ideology who have gained positions of power. And without the intervention of God, they will not stop. Those in government, those in authority, the governors and kings and their religious teachers, the religious backers, will persecute those who stand for the name of Jesus Christ. It always has been that way, it always will be that way until the Lord returns. And it gets worse. The trouble, begin, the trouble often begins closer to home. Look at Jesus down to verse 16. You will be betrayed even by parents brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Gospel, sorry, global anxiety does strange things to people and their relationships. Being anxious about survival, being anxious about the future, and being anxious about Jesus Christ goes together in our world. If family members are anxious about their life or their reputation or their power or their wealth or their security because of one of their family who stands for Jesus Christ, then they will save themselves by sacrificing their Christian relative. As Christianity is attacked and ridiculed more and more in Australia, it should come as no surprise to us that those who should be standing with us turn out to be standing against us. The experienced church leader who comes out in public against things that have been part of the Christian message since the beginning. The young Christian blogger so anxious to keep their non-Christian friends that they attack their fellow believers who stand for the traditional Christian message and morality. It's hard enough facing persecution from a world anxious about Jesus Christ but even harder when the good news of Jesus Christ is ridiculed undermined, attacked and despised by our own family, our brother, our sister, our parents, 
the members of the wider Christian community, or dare I say it, our own congregation. But this is how it will be. For being anxious about Jesus Christ is part of the global anxiety in these last days. But despite all of this, in these three little snapshots today, despite all of this, Jesus is clear that his disciples should not be overcome by the global anxiety all around us. He wants us to be a non-anxious presence in this very anxious world, even as it stands against us. In the face of the structures of wealth and power that exploit and oppress the vulnerable widow, that these things that make us anxious about survival, Jesus says, remember, that one day such things will come to an end. This is a hint towards the coming kingdom of God, which will do away with all the corrupt and oppressive and destructive human kingdoms and under the reign of the Son of Man, replace them with peace and righteousness for eternity. As we imagine the ruins of even the most magnificent symbol of human corruption, like Herod's temple, we can look forward to the infinitely more magnificent kingdom of God. In, in the face of the tumults of this world, both natural disasters and the ravages of human uprisings and wars that make us so anxious about the future, Jesus says to us, says to his disciples in verse 9, don't be frightened. Such things must happen. But they're not part of the end. They are part of a fallen, corrupt and severely broken world. But it is not these things who will bring about the end of the world. Our loving Heavenly Father will do that. And that means the end is something to look forward to, not to be anxious about. And even in the face of this world's constant and increasing anxiety about Jesus Christ, 